Um, I'm so excited to be here with you today. I get a chance to share um, in the series that we're doing, uh, Messy Spirituality. Um, I want to start off by saying just something completely not related to this, uh, to this message. So I was preparing and, and reading and doing some study this week, um, and I found this little note that I had folded up in one of my books. Um, and I just thought it would be appropriate to—I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but— um, so, so Madison was singing today, uh, and here she's going to go to the bathroom. This is about you. You can't leave. <laughs> um, but I found this note in, my, in one of my books that I wrote to Madison when she was turning 13. Um, in a first starter, she can never sing again on the day that I speak. Because um, I just cried the whole time. But I wrote this note to my Madison uh, when she was turning 13, and now she's 17. And so I just, I'll have to give it to you. I don't know that I ever read it to you, or I don't, I don't even know why I have this, but um, I, it's to you. And so um, it was about you turning 13. And so, wow, I'm just uh, proud to be a part of your life. I mean, when I was 17, I doubt that I would have been leading worship on a stage. I mean, just what a, a moving life to be a part of and watch you grow. So love you, girl. Um, <laughs> and now you can pee. <laughs> um, so Jeff had asked me to be a part of this series, and I have to tell you that I feel right at home talking about my mess. So it's kind of my thing. So I'm excited to be a part of it. Um, and so my attempt in speaking with you today is to try to create a picture for you with where Jesus meets your mess. Where does it collide? How does it even happen? Does, is there a way that it happens? Where in, does Jesus and your mess, like where do they intersect? And if, and if you're reading along in Messy Spirituality with us, um, a lot of my thoughts are going to be kind of centered around chapter 2. But um, I think if you know me a bit at all, I've kind of put my own spin on it and I walk away from the script a lot. So that's what I'm going to do with you today. Um, so specifically... In the last year, and I, I would say maybe in the last two years, but really specifically in the last year, um, God has challenged me to be very uh, transparent and a lot more comfortable with my mess. Um, I think that's something that we often avoid in church circles. Uh, we don't want to be very messy, especially in front of other people. So a, a few weeks ago, when I, had, when I shared with you last, I, I kind of told you, a bit of the weirdness that, that it is to be a pastor's wife. Um, it is kind of a strange place to be in when all of a sudden I'm up in front of you with a microphone and I'm going to say something to you and you come in to receive something today. And what makes it weird and kind of uncomfortable is that I feel, my sense is that many people show up on a Sunday morning because they want to hear something they already believe. They want to kind of amen something that they know is truth. Um, and perhaps, like, feel good that they know what that person is saying is true. So I kind of want to flip this around today with you guys. And what I feel like my, one of my biggest roles as, as who I am in my faith and as a pastor's wife and as your friend um, is that sometimes just because I have the microphone, it doesn't mean a hill of beans. You know, is that a phrase? I just said two southern things today. I said y'all this morning. And I said, hill of beans. You know, um, two, two. Because I have a microphone and because I am speaking to you this morning, it does not 
really mean anything. But, but what I want to say to you, um, and it's kind of a little bit hard to swallow, I guess, in some ways, is that I, I want us to start off on the same page. And what I want to do, I want to say to you guys is, is I am standing before you and I'm going to say a lot of words this morning, but I want us to get very comfortable with, with the understanding that we are all the same. There is, we are not any different, okay? So I kind of need you to, to hear that today. In fact, I am very uh, messy. I'm very broken. I'm very lost and pretty undeserving most of the time. So I used to be very uncomfortable with this topic. I think messy spirituality 10 years ago, if Jeff had said, I need you to talk about the mess, I would have been like, no way. Like, I am not going to engage that. Because there's something about us wanting other people to believe that we have our stuff together. Okay? And you do it too. There's something that we are um, tempted by and maybe drawn into in this culture to give the vibe that we have got our ducks in a row, we know where we're headed, and we are living in a fabulous life. So I want to say it first. I am not. I do not have it together, and I'm just as undeserving and just as messy as all of you. So I'm, I'm going to kind of start, like we're going to start it off like this. My name is Jody, and I am messy and unfinished and undeserving. I'm unqualified. I am desperate to know Jesus, but I mess up on a daily, reoccurring basis. I do not have my stuff together. I read a lot. I study a lot. I pray a lot, but I, I, I'm on a hamster wheel just like many of you. And sometimes the battle in my mind, if I were to write down my thoughts, what I think about, it would embarrass me. It would embar- you, would, you would walk out if I were to tell you, okay? Many days, the battle in my mind, and you know what? I have to dis- throw out a disclaimer. My in-laws are here, and they may not like me after this. So <laughs> I'm not going to say anything bad about them, but I am just going to be honest as all honest can be, okay? And they're here, so you might as well just get comfortable. So sometimes if I were to write down my thoughts, it would be something like this. I blew it again. Why would Jesus want anything to do with me? I am a C minus at best. I will never be above that. Why is Jeff such a grouch? Why does he not help me uh, do the dishes? Why are my kids so crazy? I'm a terrible mother. Uh, I shouldn't have had four children. If I have to cook dinner one more time, I am going to throw my face in the wall. These are things I think about. I actually think these things. I think you guys get my point, and I'm going to kind of slow it down there because I do not want you to leave, okay? (laughs) So there exists this tension between who I know that I am, a child of God, a daughter of the king, chosen and loved and forgiven. There exists this constant tension with what I know. I know that is truth. And the tension between that and what is going on in my mind. This jacked up story that I'm writing all the time, the thoughts that I'm thinking that are so negative, and it's really a narrative that I kind of have jumped into, and you start believing it after a while. If you set it to yourself long enough, you start believing that it is truth. So there's this tension between 
what we know, you know, and, and I, I'm guessing for you, this isn't the first time, and maybe it is the first time you walked in church, but for many of you, you've heard this before. You know that you're a, a, a child of God. You know that you're a son, and you're a daughter, and you're chosen and loved. You've heard that, that I am not telling you something new. But the tension exists because it often doesn't transpire into what we actually believe about ourselves. We know this is truth, but we live out of a negative, false self-narrative that is not who we are. We live in our mess, and we live as if the mess that we have put ourselves into, maybe willingly or unwillingly, we live as if that defines who we are. And there's kind of this identity crisis among most Christian people that I meet, okay? And including myself, I'm in the game, I'm right there. There is this identity crisis between who we, who we are and what we, what we think about and, and what we put into our minds that we think we are. So perhaps you feel this way too. But do you want to hear something that's quite radical, maybe shocking, okay? So just kind of a, a, to, lay, a, to kind of give us a little bit of groundwork. Most people in here, most people in culture, most evangelical, great Christians, we will spend a lifetime thinking very dualistically. We will be convinced that if there's a good, there's a bad. If there's a wrong, there's a right, okay? If there's a, you know, a bad thing, there's got to be a good thing. If I'm, if I'm bad, then I must not be good, Okay? It's this very black and white, very all or nothing, very in and out kind of thinking. And you guys do it, and I do it too. We are so quick to kind of jump to that. When you meet someone, you hear their story, you hear what they're going through. We tend to insert, like, oh, they must have, like Jeff was saying, they, they must have some sin. They must have some struggle. You know? I mean, goodness, they might deserve where they are. You know? We have this very, like, kind of dualistic way that our minds work. Now, we will spend a lot of times our whole earthly existence thinking this way. And God is trying to move us to maturity and depth where we get rid of that type of thinking and we understand that Jesus is so, so comfortable with all the messy stuff. In fact, he likes it. He prefers it. He goes to the mess. He engages the mess. We see this in his, in his life that we read about in scripture. He is not turned off by it, but somehow we are. And somehow we're convinced that if we can't like, get it together, he's going to stay pretty far away from us. And what is shocking, what, what's kind of radical, what I want to say to you, is that spirituality is a home, is the home base for those of us that don't have it together, which is every person in this room. Spirituality is the home, it is home for those of us who don't have all the answers, who do not have it figured out, who are living very, very messy lives. Jesus is right at home with that, and it's us that kind of inserts our, our level of uncomfortableness with the way that he radically loves us and pursues us again and again, and he gets right up close and personal with our mess. So in the book, Messy Spirituality, uh, Mike Iaconelli, he says this, and, and this might be my favorite thing in the whole book, and it's just one sentence. He says, Jesus is not repelled by us, no matter how messy we are. Jesus is not repelled by you, no matter how messy you are. And it, we can't wrap our head around that. 
Because even after I say that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't feed my kids anything healthy for breakfast. I don't even know if they brushed their teeth. I'm like, I'm thinking that even as I say that to you, Jesus is so comfortable and he is not repelled by our mess. In fact, he's right close and it's our perception that keeps him at bay because we are convinced that we're not, we're the C minus Christians, okay? We're the C minus average, we'll never be quite better than that, we're not good at anything. We have convinced ourselves that, not Jesus. So Jesus is comfortable with our mess and in fact, he's very willing to collide with it all the time. So why is it so difficult for us to believe that he actually does? Why is it so challenging to know this truth, to hear it, to, I mean, you guys, for, I mean, you guys can grab the mic and say the same thing I'm saying right now. Like, you know, Jesus comes to the mess. He loves us. He pursues us. But there's a disconnect between us knowing that and the perception that we actually process in our minds of what we think God thinks about us. So I'm going to just give you a very, very quick psychology lesson, and then we're going to open the Bible. I promise I'm going to use, I will use the Bible. Um, so if you hated psychology in school, I'm very sorry, and this will be super, super brief, but it's important for us to understand. There is a reason why it's very difficult for us to fully embrace how God thinks about us, and it happens in our minds. So psychologists, um, they believe it, they, that nearly every 30 seconds, Everybody um, experiences a repetitive thought, okay? So we have thinking that we've already thought before. So every 30 seconds, something is going on in your mind. Perhaps you're thinking, I wish she would talk faster. She always goes so long. Or um, maybe you're thinking, I'm really hungry. I didn't have any breakfast. I should have eaten. Oh, I should have had, you know. Your, your mind starts going on something that you've probably already thought before. We're not really having new thoughts. Or... I'm a C-minus Christian. Like, I'm not really very good at this thing. Or I'm not a very good mom, you know. Those are things that we've thought before, and those thoughts kind of cycle back. So every 30 seconds, you're thinking something that you probably have already thought before, unless you're kind of like out there in, in, in a new place, okay? Eckhart Tolle, in his book, uh, The Power of Now, he writes that the mind can only go two ways, Okay? that we can only endlessly process the past or endlessly worry about the future. Does anybody worry in here about anything ever? I was, I was like, an, I'm an, an inherited, like, worrier. I, it's an, an, like, an inherited trait in my family, so I got it. So it's like, that makes so much sense to me. Like, we think about our past, mistakes, decisions. Oh, that was awful. Why did I ever wear that? I should have never said that that person I should have go apologize to, or we worry about what's not to come, like what we don't know. So it's, you know, we can't really get to the now. Our mind really struggles with being present and, and thinking of right now. The author and speaker, Dr. Brené Brown, she's a, a research professor at the Uni University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work, long title, She's phenomenal. If you have never looked at any of her work, I'm, I love her. But one of the things that she says that is, is really striking is that most adults will live their life only ever convinced that they are half good at anything. Like C minus. Most adults will, will live your life only convinced that you are ever half good 
half, you know, okay, half right, half beautiful, half fit, half, you know, it's never that you've really arrived. And so she calls this the false narrative of the mind. That what we're thinking about gets inside of us and we're actually convinced, even though we know truth, we're chosen, we're, we're children of God, he loves us, we're forgiven, we know that. But we have this running false narrative in our minds and it's what we grab hold of and it's what we continue to think about day in and day out. So a negative thought can turn into a negative narrative. And let me just tell you, I'm going to give you just one example of how this works and then we're going to look at Mark chapter 1. So let's just say you've had a really long day and I'll just say this was me. I had a really long day and I needed to kind of sit down for a minute, maybe lay down on a chair, perhaps in my living room. And the kids are kind of running around. And this is a scenario. And like, so say Jeff comes in the door and it's complete pandemonium and I'm there laying on the chair, the couch, resting my eyes. Um, what if he says to me, hey, what's for dinner? Okay, now, let me just tell you what happens. All of the wrath inside of me, all of the things that I have not dealt with, processed, figured out in my world, so all of a sudden it comes out of my mouth. And I have no idea why that happens. And all he said was, what's for dinner? And I am like, do you know where the store is? Do you know that your car can actually drive to the store? Do you know that you could buy a pizza and there is a thing called McDonald's? Like, I mean, it's like, I go from like just normal taking a nap to like crazy person, okay? In about 30 seconds. Now, I all of a sudden start thinking, well, he thinks I'm a bad mom, and he thinks that I don't do a good job, and he thinks that I never think about our kids' needs in dinner, and I am starting to think all these crazy thoughts, okay? And all he said was, what's for dinner? Now, all he was probably thinking was, I'm hungry. Is there food? Can I eat it? And, and I have, like, t taken this into this internal, personal attack on my existence, right? And I might as well just die. You know, that's, that's how crazy we are. Now, I know I'm not alone in that, so don't, yeah, just don't pretend like I'm not so. So this happens, and that is an example of a false narrative. And if I let that get power in my mind, I will continue the rest of the night thinking I'm a terrible wife, I'm a terrible mother, I should just leave, uh, you know, and, because I could never do it right. When you give power to something that, that is negative, it will triple. It will quadruple. And the next time he says, what's for dinner, if I haven't resolved that, I will throw something at his face. You know, like, when you don't resolve what's happening in your mind, you will not be able to let transformation unfold. Okay? When you do not resolve what is happening in your mind, the transformation of the God that we serve to come in and turn you over will not happen. Because truth will never become reality. You'll never put them together. Okay, so Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read just a brief story about Jesus' baptism and temptation. And I want to read to you from the Amplified Version. If you have never opened the Amplified Version, like, I, I'm kind of just loving it right now because I like the fill in the blanks. So they do all these, like, parentheses, and it, and it gives the reader a bit more information that you may not see in the text, Okay. So check it out if you, if you have not read the Amplified Version. I love the wording here, and so I, I specifically wanted to read you this version this morning. 
So chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And I think it's going to be up here. Yep. Okay. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, at once he, John, saw the heavens torn open and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, came coming down to enter into him. And there came a voice out from he- within heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Holy Spirit from within drove him out into the wilderness desert. And he stayed in the wilderness desert 40 days, being tempted all the while by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him continually. So these are, this is a very short little story. And if, like Mark, sometimes if you don't have a lot of time in your reading, Mark is a great, like I always like, I think he's like the drive-by version of the gospel. Like it's just short, it's to the point, it's great for guys, great for men. Right to the point, okay? So he just gets to it, and he just says, this is what happened. Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven, he was given identity, like, you are my beloved, and that was kind of a slam on men. I'm really sorry. I didn't, wasn't trying to say that you don't, you know, I love y'all. Anyway, so Jesus is receiving identity from God. He's, he's given that, this moment, you are my beloved. I am well pleased in you, okay? And then the scripture says that immediately, like, not the next day, not a week, a month, immediately the Holy Spirit drove him to the wilderness. Now, why in the world would that happen immediately? Why would he receive his identity, know who he is, have that given to him, and then immediately he's driven to the wilderness for 40 days of temptation, the companion of the wild beasts, and and his mind racing about who he is. It is no accident that we see this happen because this is exactly what happens to you and I. We receive identity. We are given a story. We are given the, the, you know, you are my beloved. You have heard that before. I'm not the first person to tell you that. God has chosen you. He's created you. He loves you. He chases after you. These are things like you would say, yes, I have heard that. But what happens is, is that the Holy Spirit immediately drives him to the wilderness, and in the wilderness is the mess. And this is what happens so many times to us. We receive the truth, we hear the, 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 the identity that we've been given, and then immediately we hit the mess. Immediately we hit the mess. All craziness comes out. And you know, we're, we're understanding this metaphorically, I mean, like literally you're not going to be thrown somewhere by yourself for 40 days. Like, I'm guessing that's not going to happen in your lifetime, okay? But what does happen is we are thrown into wilderness moments where we feel like we are far from anything. And we're being tormented in our minds. We're starting to think all these crazy thoughts. And we start to believe the negative narrative that is going on in the wilderness. So it's no accident because this very pattern of Jesus receiving his identity and then being drove to the wilderness is exactly the same pattern that is on repeat in all of us. It's the pattern of death and resurrection. It's the pattern of transformation. If you do not have ongoing transformation, ongoing death to false, false self and resurrection to new life, you are not, you're not growing. Growth stops when we do not allow that to happen. But what happens 
in the wilderness, okay? Nobody wants to stay in the wilderness, right? Nobody wants to stay in the mess. I mean, I don't know any person that I would meet that would say, I love, I love the mess. You know, I want to be here. We want to get out as fast as we can. So we start to hustle, okay? And what I mean by that is when, when you're in the wilderness and it stinks to the core and you're mad and angry and, and frustrated, we start to hustle. And what that means is we want to get out. Like we want to pray more. We want to work harder. We want to show to God that we are great, awesome people so then he'll move us out of that mess. We're desperate for that. But what happens in this, this story that I think that we kind of just skip over and maybe miss scenes is at the very end there, it says, and the angels minister to him continually. So we understand that Satan is kind of messing with our minds, and we understand that sometimes in the wilderness we will encounter the companionship of wild beasts, okay, and whatever that can look like for you. A companionship of a wild beast can just be the things that just get you, okay? Whether that's a, a particular decision or a, 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 an area that you struggle with or uh, something that's going on in your mind about how you think. So that, we, we kind of get that that happens. But in this story, do we miss the point that the angels took care of him continually? Even in the mess, the angels took care of him continually. So where does Jesus meet your mess? Where is he in the mess that you're in? He begins by establishing your identity. You are beloved. You are chosen. You are children of God. You are loved. You are forgiven. This is who we are. And then when you get to the wilderness, which it's not if, it's when, you know that, right? It's coming. If it's not right now, like watch out tomorrow. I mean, the mess just keeps kind of recycling, right? So the transformation that happens in us as we deepen our faith is that in the mess, we see the spirit. In the mess, we, we don't focus on Satan and the wild beasts and the, the mess of it, but we notice that there is this powerful peace and comforter that is with us and taking care of us continually. That even in the hardest hardship that we will come encountered with, that we will face, that his presence doesn't leave us. It's our lack of awareness of his presence that kind of stops our growth and transformation. When we get caught up in the hustle and trying to make our way out of the wilderness and doing it on our own and, and taking things into our own hands, we won't really ever get out of the wilderness. But when we notice that his presence does not leave us, that it's continually coming to our aid, continually colliding with whatever it is that we're facing, and we let him care for us, transformation begins to happen and things begin to move in the way that we think and our belief in I'll never be more than a c-minus Christian starts to change because we learn that we can change our narrative we can begin to think the way that God thinks and the way that he views us so if, if Satan and the wild beasts and the, the whole wilderness experience basically takes you under every time you have to go back to it. 
I wonder if you're ever really facing the transformation that God wants and calls each one of us to face. The turnover, the turnaround, the movement towards him, the recognition that he doesn't leave. He establishes identity for a reason and his presence stays with us continually. It doesn't go. In, in uh, Romans chapter 9, Paul is talking a lot about identity and who we are. And, and um, he's quoting some different passages from the Old uh, Testament. And he talks about uh, Hosea and Isaiah. Um, and, and it's kind of remarkable what he says. And this is from the message version. This is Romans uh, chapter 9. And I'm going to read 25 and 27. Hosea puts it well. I'll call nobodies and make them somebodies. I'll call the unloved and make them beloved. And in the place where they yell out, you are nobody, they're calling God's living children. They're calling you God's living children. And Isaiah maintained the same emphasis in saying, if each grain of sand on the, the seashore were numbered and labeled, the sum, labeled, the sum of them labeled chosen of God, they are still numbers, not names. Salvation comes by personal selection. God doesn't count us, he calls us by name. Arithmetic is not his focus. I will make nobodies and I will call them somebodies. I will call the unloved and make them beloved. Perhaps you've heard that said before, but perhaps you do not believe that about who you are. And I think that that might be the greatest challenge of the messy lives we live, is learning that the intersection of where Jesus is and where our mess is, is, is right there all the time. And it's the recognition of his presence in the wilderness that brings in the comfort and the peace that we're all really longing for. He meets us in our identity, establishes that first, but he stays with us through every mess every single one. So I, I want to read you guys just two quotes um, from a book that I love, and then I'm, I'm going to actually kind of wrap up our thoughts a little bit differently today. So if you have ever, ever struggled with who you are in God, and you just kind of are listening to what I'm saying, and you're like, oh, I, I, I just don't, I don't know if I believe this. I don't know that I really believe that I'm a child of God. Um, there's two books that I would say grab, pick up. There's one book that's called Abba's Child by Brennan Manning. I got it my senior year of high school, which is a while ago. And, um, and I've read it probably ten times. It, and I will keep reading it, and I will pass it to my children. It is a phenomenal read if you've ever had doubts about who you are in God. And then the other book that I would recommend is called The Life of the Beloved by Henry Nowen. And this is a book that I think that he wrote this chapter for me. I'm pretty convinced he did. I'm sure he doesn't know me personally, but somewhere, subconsciously, I think it was written just for me. And I've, I've read these two paragraphs. I've underlined, starred. I've read them again and again, and I want to just read them to you. From all of eternity, long before you were born and became a part of history, you existed in God's heart. Just pretty phenomenal. Long before any human being saw us, we were seen by God's loving eyes. Long before anyone heard us cry or laugh, we are heard by God, who is all ears for us. Long before any person in this world, we were spoken to, uh, be long before any person in this world spoke to us, 
We are spoken to by the voice of eternal love. Our preciousness, our uniqueness, our individuality are not given to us by those who meet us in clock time, our brief chronological existence, but by the one who has chosen us with everlasting love, a love that existed from all of eternity and will last all of eternity. We are not given our value and our worth by the people that we meet in this, this timeline that we have on earth. Our worth and our value is in the identity that Jesus was given from the Father and now we are given from him. So, I want to do something with you guys today because I just feel like um, this, what I shared with you last week, this, the, the statistics show that 90% of what I have said to you today you will forget within a week, <laughs> which is so sad. I worked so hard. Um, <laughs> but 90% of what I've, I've said to you, you, you won't retain. And that's okay. I'm not like, it's all good. We're still friends. Um, maybe. Um, so what I want to do with you guys now as we conclude is I'm going to tell you a story that has radically impacted me. And, and what I'm hoping that is that gives you a picture to walk away with perhaps put into practice, because really, like, the real deal is, like, you guys taking this, investigating it, and believing it as truth for you. I can believe it as truth for me for forever and always, but really, like, the real thing is, is that if you guys take what, what I'm going to, to share with you, or what I have shared, and you investigate, and you unravel it, and you begin to believe that, that you are chosen by God, and that his presence is in your mess, okay? So, um, I want to share with you guys a story. Um, I've said to you before, and I'm sure that you might have heard before, is that God is available as our very breath. That he's as close to you in the mess that you're in as your very breath. Okay? So I wanted to um, kind of make this a little bit more real to you, that you can take with you today. So at a conference in 2003, um, this conference took place in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, the conference was called The Convergence of Science and Religion. And I want to, do, to retell you what happened in this day. So in one of the sessions, one of the teaching sessions, uh, a man who was teaching was both a scientist and a Jewish rabbi, okay? And he is communicating to all of this, these people. This room is filled with PhDs, men and women, probably a lot smarter than me, you know, they, they um, were there at this conference. So he starts off by saying to this room, and he says, you know, Christians, you know, you guys have kind of gotten it all wrong when it comes to the commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And what he starts to say is that Christians have really misunderstood the background and what this means. And when, when the, in the, the phrase in vain was translated into English, um, you know, we often take it as do not curse, right? Do not, and I was, I was raised in that family where it was like, if you said, oh my gosh, it was basically, you were cut out. Like, that was the, the equivalent of saying, oh my God, and it was because it was in my heart, and I'm like, oh, okay, oh my gosh! Yeah, just kidding. Um, but we, we kind of have a misunderstanding of what that means. And so he goes on to say is that in vain, when translated into the English, was actually meant to say, do not take it at all. And saying it in vain would, would be used uselessly. To say it at all would be spoken uselessly. 
So for several centuries, this was very strictly followed in Judaism, that the sacred name Yahweh would never be, to be never pronounced by your lips in your whole lifetime. So this is a true message of humility, right? Because, you know, we often hear people say, well, I believe in God. I mean, you might say that, I might say that, I believe in God. But the belief was is that it would be radically seen in the way that you lived and not spoken, okay? So the presence of God would be noticed in your brothers and sisters because of a life was different, it was changed, it was altered. But the sacred name Yahweh, Yahweh would not have been said. So the true, um, kind of the interesting part is that when, when you think about the, the Hebrew language, so the Hebrew language, when, when, they're, when it's written, you only write the consonants, okay? You do not include the vowels. So it is, the, the thought is that your eyes kind of fill in. Your, your eyes will look through and you'll fill in the, and you'll be able to create the words. So the consonants used in the sacred name Yahweh, when, it, when come together, the thought was, or the belief was, is that they would be able to come together without ever speaking them at all. That in fact, this name, the sacred name, would not be spoken, but only ever breathed. And that the sound of the sacred name, breathed, was to replicate inhalation and exhalation. Okay? So in this conference, in this room with all these PhDs, the man, the scientist, Jewish rabbi, he begins breathing. And he starts doing this. And he does this about 30 times. And as he's doing this, you can hear people just crying. I mean, these are PhDs, men and women who have, have the smarts, you know. And there's tears erupting in the room. And it was as if the room got it. That they understood that God is as available as your very breath. And that phrase doesn't just come because we've, we've created that. It comes because they, it was actually believed. You did not say the name of Yahweh, but it was in your breath that you were communicating that he was with you. So when we entered this world, when you were born, the day that you were born, the very first thing that you did was breathe. You said the name of God as an infant, that was your first words. And the very last thing that will happen in this life as you pass from this earthly existence, you will take your last breath and you will breathe Yahweh. You will say his name. So what's quite remarkable to think about is that, you know, the widows that I love so much in Guatemala, did they breathe, did they breathe the same as us? They breathe exactly the same. You know, for the, the children that are flooded in our schools and starting back to school this week at Swain and high school, middle school, these, these little kids, our kids back in Wombaland, they breathe. God's presence is as available as your very breath. And so perhaps the next time that you are thrown into the wilderness, because you will be, it's to recognize that in the mess, he's in your breath. Jesus, the presence of God, Yahweh, is right there. It's right there, and he never leaves. His spirit takes care of us continually. 
I want you guys to stand with me and we're going to pray. I really specifically wanted to say this ending because I wanted you guys to think about it as you leave. If you forget every single thing I've said to you today, perhaps you will remember that it is in your breath the presence of God, Yahweh. Thomas Merton says that if you are trying to get your mind calm, that after the 23rd breath, you'll stop thinking. I, I can't really ever get past 15, okay? But I'm trying. <laughs> if, you, if you can try to slow yourself down in the midst of the mess, and you, and you breathe, you will feel his presence. You will sense that he is with you. Let's pray.